and it was really cool to take this technology that I was obsessed with and make it a career and look at ways to help people monetize that didn't destroy their creativity. Right. I would always push for other ways to go about it. Don't just throw a banner there. Don't set a full page interstitial to go every third page view. Really be aware of your customer and make sure that you are not alienating them, but also taking advantage of monetization. It was a natural fit into podcasting. Podcast Junkies, episode 254. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran, if you're new to the show. We're seeking out interesting voices in podcasting, whether it's industry folks, folks just getting started with their show, or people who've been doing it for a while. All comers welcome, and I'm always excited to see how the guest takes to Podcast Junkies and how the interview goes. Last week, we had a great conversation with Nitel Parikh. She's the host of the Impact Podcast and also the founder of Innovate Social. Make sure you check that out, episode 253. This week, Brian Barletta, podcast host and ad tech expert, joins Podcast Junkies to share his experience helping companies build up and execute their solutions in ad tech, podcast monetization, and a whole slew of other topics we'll get into in this episode. He's the host of Sounds Profitable and the creator of the newsletter by the same name. I was really looking forward to bringing Brian on. I wanted to talk about the staggering pace of change in the podcast ad tech industry, what's happening from a sponsorship perspective, his thoughts on privacy and projects such as the podcast index. And given his background, I knew he wouldn't disappoint. So it's really an interesting conversation if you want to learn about the future of advertising sponsorships and a whole slew of different models that are presenting themselves and are important for podcasters who are looking to grow their show to know about. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlet 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right, and the link will be in the show notes as well. I found out about Brian through the Pod News newsletter, so we learn about that connection with James Cridland, who's been on the show before as well. Definitely one of those deeper dives into the ins and outs of podcast ads. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies. Stay tuned to the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. Let's get into this conversation with Brian. So Brian Barletta, founder of Sounds Profitable. Thank you for joining me on Podcast Junkies. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to great to finally do this. We've had to reschedule a few times, but <laughs> I'm glad we are here. Yeah, this is one of those conversations, like whenever I get to talk to my colleagues in the podcasting space, it's just a fun opportunity to just figure out what, what we want to talk about, what's top of mind for us in podcasting, and just let the, the conversation meander <laughs> yeah. and go where it may. You were just talking in the before we started recording about you're currently in Austin, and I think podcast-related, obviously, because that's where the home for Joe Rogan now and, and Tim Ferriss, and apparently all, all major podcasters now must <laughs> live in Austin. So maybe just wondering what life has been like there for you and that little snippet you shared about how things are changing, I thought was funny. Yeah, I think that with Austin, I think that they've had a lot of growth. I mean, I moved down here five years ago and, you know, it felt like then a lot of people were coming in from everywhere, from California, from New York. I came in from New York and, you know, it was very interesting because I would sit there in a coffee shop when I first moved here and people would be like, I have this great idea. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like, I really miss like some of the, like the young incubator growth side of New York. And just last week, I went down to a coffee shop that I hadn't been to in a while that was downtown that had a beautiful view. And it had this giant like 15 story building right in front of it. Very small street, but the entire view was blocked. It's all apartments now. It's got a Whole Foods and a Target under it. And everybody in line was talking about their like VC backed startup. And it just really feels like we had 10 years of change in Austin in mm. this one pandemic year. I mean, everybody who doesn't have to be in New York or LA anymore, I think is absolutely exploring the different options as they should. And I think Austin's hot on everybody's list. So I'm hoping it keeps that cool feeling as you know, still a transplant myself, but I'm excited to see the growth. I'm excited to see what the startup culture is like and you know, really explore the podcast scene down here once mm. 
everybody's vaccinated and everybody's taking this seriously. Yeah, I guess in a, in a normal world, there would be a lot of meetups, a lot of podcasting meetups, and you could yep. meet a lot of the local community there. And, and now it's all happening remotely. So I guess it's a matter of deciding how long you want to stay there to see if you can experience that or just the wave influx of all these people coming in to the city is going to be just too much. Because it doesn't seem, you know, from the couple of times I've been down there to visit a couple of times, I, I was down there most recently to support Ever Gonzalez for the Outlier Podcast Festival. And interestingly enough, we had the mayor of Austin got to speak at that conference. And it was interesting because he made it a point to say how downtown two or three years prior, like there was nothing going on development-wise. And in the span of a couple of years, I think he said some crazy number, like how many hundreds of thousands of you know apartments would, would become available and like dozens of buildings going up, which I'm sure you've you've seen happen in probably what seems like the blink of an eye. Yeah, yeah. If you drive through downtown right now, you see like seven or eight cranes out there at a time. And I think there's there's between five and ten new very large buildings being built there. And it's gonna change, but it's it's got a nice feel to it. I'm really excited for I guess not to return to normal because I don't think that's ever going to yeah. happen, but like whatever the new normal is, because I miss just walking through downtown and hearing music playing and wanting mm -hmm. to stop into a place to just listen to it. I think that was a very cool feel of Austin. Where in New York did you live? I was in Brooklyn for about 10 years. Okay. Near Park Slope area. I was, it was great. I really enjoyed it, but it was one of those things like, I feel living in New York is like going to a, an amusement park. As long as you want to ride the rides and eat the cotton candy, it's fun. But the second you're done with it, like get out. And that was it. I hit ten years, and I didn't. I didn't want to ride the rides anymore. And where were you prior to New York? Grew up in Massachusetts, so okay. a little bit north of Boston. Okay. I feel like everybody's either 45 minutes from Boston or 45 minutes from Worcester in Massachusetts. So. Yeah, so we were in New York around the same time because I, I grew up in New York. I grew up in Yonkers, New York, and lived in this city, various iterations, uh, East Village, Upper East Side, Greenpoint as well. I was there for Hurricane Sandy. I was there for 9-11. It was just, it's, I feel like that's definitely my home. But I think to your point about being able to walk around, as much as I would like to go back there or just live on in the suburbs and just be one of those commuter train rides in. I think we're still a year and a half maybe yeah. from anything resembling normal and what you love about big cities. Cause I've also lived in LA as well. Like the culture, the music, the bars, the, the restaurants, being able to walk around. It just seems like, you know, what's happened in the past year is ingrained in people so much that they're, even if everyone magically got the vaccine tomorrow, I think people would just still be a little skittish about things like that. Yeah, yeah. My, I got a two and a half year old, and I'm like the other day, I was just like, oh, how great would it be to walk through IKEA? <laughs> like, that's where we are right now. That's, that's where everything is. Everybody just wants to be able to go into a retail store comfortably. They want to be able to walk down the street and see, you know, more than like boarded up signs. Like my heart goes out to all the mm. small businesses as a yeah. small business runner myself. I can't imagine having office space right now. I can't imagine having a retail space. I just, you know, I'm sure there's going to be some cool new growth and some advancement from it. And I kind of think that podcasting can help a lot of that. I yeah. think that that can be the neat aspect of it. But we're going to be able to see, you know, different ways that these people can recover or tell their stories. And, you know, that's yeah. if they unfortunately lost everything, but they are going to try something else or start over or go to another job. They still have a cool story. And I think a lot of people can learn from it. I think this is going to be the type of thing we look back a lot at in history and the ability for someone to just grab a microphone or their AirPods and just record an interview with someone and make it available, I think is, is going to change things. Like I said, I got a toddler. I'm, I'm real excited to see what type of media they give them to experience when they're in high school, when they're looking back on what happened here. Yeah. I think it'll be really eye opening and ear opening. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'm always curious because someone on our team actually just gave birth to a, a new baby yesterday. And, you know, you with a two and a half year old, my partner's sister has, is, we just went to a birthday and she just turned two. But there's an interesting thing happening because kids are not able to play with other kids. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious how that's been for you and what your thoughts are about what that's going to do to the developments and how that they're going to adapt because kids are really good at adapting. 
I think that we're going to see a rise in the normalization of like mental health care. Mm. I think that that's going to be a big thing. I mean, my kid's two and a half. So think about it. Like he was a year and a half when this happened. So even under five, most kids aren't like playing with each other. They're playing around each other. But if, you know, even before the pandemic really broke out, my son would cry if someone came near him. So now imagine a year of not interacting with another child. Like when we go to walk by the park and there's a few parks near our house, if they're empty, we go and play. But if they're not, he'll, you know, he'll be, he'll sit there and yell. It'll be like, people go away. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's scary. I can't imagine if he was two and a half when it started, right. Or older. I can't imagine if I had to pull him out of preschool or kindergarten or homeschool, an elementary school kid. I think that we are very lucky. You know, we have our second kid due in July and my wife is almost ready for her second vaccine. So mm. hopefully things are going to be a little bit safer there, Yeah, but it's still scary. Right. Like it's if we weren't going to do home birth, I probably would still not be able to be there for the birth. And yeah, I mean, yeah. I think kids are ultimately resilient, but I think that we're going to see a big impact. I think these kids are going to grow up different than we grew up or the next generation. And I think it's on us to make sure that we make space to work and help them. Yeah, I mean, I'm 50. I was born in 1970. So a lot of the things that like I just took for granted, like being able to play in the streets, like having a neighborhood full of like a dozen kids that were just, we would just randomly like think of things to play and all the street games and, you know, just having that as part of your child and then get, growing up later and then seeing, you know, parents being overprotective and not letting their kids out to play. And now this additional wave of like kids not interacting with other kids, it's just to your point, going to be interesting to see. And you can only think about that stuff looking back like yeah. you only know the impacts of that after years or maybe even a decade of like you know this time of not interacting so it's, it's a fascinating experiment which we find ourselves in and i think it's going to be yeah just interesting to see what the results are of it yeah yeah i was definitely i'm only 35 you're a very young looking 50 <laughs> so i think i was like at the tail end of the like don't come home until the street lights are on yeah age range but yeah, yeah it's very different, but I think we all learn from it and we can all figure out how to just adapt. And your first child was home birth as well? Yep. Yep. Okay. I think that, <laughs> I think that if we weren't planning it, it would happen anyways. Yeah. My wife has the unenviable or the enviable fact for other pregnant women that her entire labor was 90 minutes. And I think oh my 30 minutes of it was waiting <laughs> for the midwife to get there. So I'm getting prepared to catch number two myself. So we'll see how that goes. Were you listening to home birth podcasts? You know, I, I wasn't, I really should have. I feel like when I was working, so right before I left New York, I was working, I was one of the founding members of Barometric and we were just at the cusp of pivoting from just total attribution to a very laser focused podcast attribution. From there, Barometric was acquired by Claritas and they still do podcast attribution as very much a primary part of their attribution tool. But I felt like I had stopped listening to podcasts for a little bit. I listened to the ones that I really liked or when I wanted to listen to someone specific, but it's so funny that the further you get into this sometimes, sometimes you forget to enjoy it as a medium. Yes. And <laughs> discoverability <true>. doesn't help <laughs> with that either. The, you know, if I loaded up, I was like, oh, I want to listen to something. It's like, oh, I could try and find something new, or I can just listen to another Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Too easy to default to stuff. But now since I started Sounds Profitable in August or September of 2020, like I've made it a priority that like, oh, if I want to learn something, let's search and see if I can find a podcast on it first. Let's, you know, dissect that. Let's learn a little bit more about audio quality and ads and the relationship that they have with their community and, and really see what I can figure out. What's your preferred podcast app? You know, I'm lazy and I use Apple Podcasts. Oh, you do? Okay. I do, I do. But I have all of them downloaded on my phone and I'll mess yeah. around with them at different times. Yeah. I think that the hardest part is, you know, the music apps have all kind of figured out how to work together so that you can transfer from one to the other. Like if you're going to leave Spotify and go to Apple Music or vice versa, there are ways to adapt that. We need that for podcasting. We need the, the way that I can be like, okay, I'm done with Apple Podcasts. I do want to check out overcast i do want to check out pocket cast but i don't want to go through and select it all and until we get there 
I think that's going to be tough. I would love for something like Podchaser to be the center point of that, right? I select everything in Podchaser and it pushes it out to my apps of choice. But I think that's a big hurdle because we're we're in this space right now where the podcast apps are king, right? Those players don't have to follow really any rules. They own the relationship with the listener themselves. They have minimal obligation to provide data to the hosting platform or the podcast themselves. And, you know, that's not great. We're dealing with an industry that's trying to standardize around downloads versus listens and all the other metrics that we can track while Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon all can kind of do their own thing. And I would not expect them to collaborate or kind of adhere to any sort of uniformity. I imagine Marco Arment might have a different perspective <laughs> because I think, uh, you know, especially when it comes to questions about what metrics to report or what to make available to advertisers. I'm sure you've seen some of his posts and how what he feels about it. So it's interesting because to your point, given that he did create an app that's pretty popular, he and he's typically the second or third, you know, destination when it comes to people listening to it, it is challenging to, to figure out an ecosystem where everyone can play and get the information that they want specifically, you know, for their purposes. But I'm wondering, like, how you see that being resolved? Do you think like projects like Podcasting 2.0 can, you know, and the Podcast Index, you know, what Adam Curry is doing can help alleviate some of that uh, so that we all get a little bit of what we all need? Yeah, I think, you know, if we look at the Podcast Index and Podcasting 2.0, what scares me about that is that the hosts and the publishers are very interested in it, but there's not a lot of obligation from the players to adhere to it. So if we're putting out all this extra data and we're all uniform around it until NPR or iHeart goes, hey, you got 90 days. You know, if you don't ingest this data, we're going to pull it from your app. Like we're going to ask you to remove it until that happens. There's no obligation for those apps to comply. And that's kind of the scary part. Marco wields a lot of power. I've reached out to him a bunch of times and, you know, he hasn't reached out back. James Cridlin hasn't suggested that he talk with me. His privacy focus thing that he did, I thought it was weird, right? He has the opportunity to empower people to declare what their intentions and their wants are and pass mm -hmm. it on to the host. And yeah. instead he just like raised a flag and was just like, Hey, you should be concerned about this. I would kill for some standards in like, if I am in a CCPA territory or GDPR territory and I've either, you know, I want to opt out in CCPA or I'm by default opted out in GDPR. If Marco's app, if Overcast could send to my host, hey, this person's opted out. You do not have right to use their IP. That means that they can use it just for the actual content and not for advertising. And if someone like Marco did that and set a standard, it would be easy to start convincing Spotify and Apple to do that. Because I'll tell you that like PRX is a great example of a podcast company that is very, very focused on privacy. So if you said to PRX, like, hey, there's this standard, the apps who absolutely legally need to ask you to opt in or opt out, depending on where you're located, now can have a way to pass that over to your host so you can be in true compliance. They would be like, yeah, we want that, and that should be a standard. There are so many privacy-focused people out there, but the, the problem is, is that the apps hold all the power. So while we can like beg Apple and Spotify, Google and Amazon to do the right thing, what we can do is look to the other six in the top 10 and say, you are fully empowered to do that. And if you do that, we can rally behind you, right? Even if yeah. Maple Media owns, what do they own? Podkicker, Player FM, and Breaker. Imagine if just the three of those, even if those aren't even all in the top 10, imagine if the three of those implemented this, right? That's power and volume. That's a press release. That's the type of thing that yeah. TechCrunch or The Verge is going to pick up and say, hey, there are these standards. These apps do legally need to get this information for their own data. They should pass that on to the host. I think it's a great step forward. I would really love to see more initiative from these developers to do that. Now, the, the hard part, I will say, is that on privacy, there's a fine line, right? If I go to a website and I say, I'm going to decline sharing my cookies, if I get that pop-up from Apple coming soon that says, do you want to share your IDFA? And I click no. IDFA is the identifier for advertisers. Creator of that site, the creator of that app still gets the IP address, user agent, and the content I'm looking at, which is the exact content that we get in podcasting, right? That's the bottom of the barrel for them is the top of the barrel for us. Mm -hmm. So I personally don't believe that we should be in a situation where I in Texas, who does not have any legal 
like representation for how to opt in and opt out should be able to, I guess, just determine that I opt out and an app pass that and a host have to comply to it, which saying it out loud feels really shitty, not going to lie. But the truth is, is we need better regulation and we need to go about it that way. We can't fragment the space more by allowing this one app to insist that people have to like can opt out under any conditions. We need more visibility on it. And I think people like Marco can be the right people to get out there and talk to you know, the privacy councils and set precedent. And I would love to rally behind him and the podcast index guys and work with them. They're just, they're anti-advertising and that's okay. But anti-advertising doesn't mean like, or pro-advertising doesn't mean anti-privacy. And I'm, I'm very pro-privacy, but I'm pro-legal privacy, right? I'm pro, let's find the right ways to go about it. Let's find the ethical ways to go about it. And let's figure out what works for an industry and how to move forward together. Have you ever heard of a site called letter.wiki? I don't think I have. So letter.wiki is, uh, I've because of everything that's happening with like a lot of these uh, cultural movements of groups and, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and then everything from the far right to like far left, splinters of different groups. There's a lot of like, they call it like the like a culture war happening because you know there's people jumping into different camps and so i came across this site recently it's a it's a way to sort of start conversations with people who are sometimes diametrically opposed to like views that you have but you create an open letter to them and you say you know open letter to mark orman and you write it and then he has the opportunity to respond and then you can have a, a respectful dialogue not a shouting match back and forth but he can make his point he can make his points and then you can you know you know, counteract his points. And then some of these, you know, go on pretty long. If you look at some of the top ones, you know, they, they get four or five letters deep and it's just them going back and forth. And I've seen people like, who is it, the name forgets me, but the very famous, like progressive author, like he's really popular. <laughs> I'm like totally forgetting his name now, but yeah, just, it's just a really interesting way to just, you know, sort of start that conversation. Noam Chomsky. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So I think the the one thing that I want to push is that the podcasting space is actually also a perfect medium for it. You know, in uh, podcasting 2.0, we were talking about a privacy perimeter and how it would work. And Dave, Dave Jones, I believe over there responded back and said, like, let's do this as a podcast. Let's talk through this and all the sides of it as a podcast. And I love that. And, you know, it's so funny. We're in a space about audio, but we want to do like video accompanying. We want to do webinars. We want to do pitch decks. Like, why hasn't there been a an entire conference for podcasting done in podcasting format? Yeah. You know, let's really savor the on-demand nature of it. Let's really take advantage of the medium. Let's show people how it works by using it. But we fall back to these other methods. And, you know, this is coming from a guy who has a newsletter on podcasting instead of a <laughs> podcast. Well, the podcast just launched. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I write my ideas down first, mostly because otherwise I ramble like I'm doing here. <laughs> No, I think it's one of those conversations that it's not something that you can, is going to have an endpoint. And it's something that the more viewpoints that come into it, the, the, you'll see your point that, you know, if you get, had you, Dave Jones and Marco on a, on a podcast, you know, it would e either be a really short episode or just a, a four hour one. Yeah. And I, I don't know. And I think what I like about the letter.wiki is the ability to actually have the freedom to express your viewpoints uninterrupted and then you know, thoughtfully look at what has been responded to and saying, okay, I need some time to think about it. Because sometimes in an audio format, you're just feeling like you're put on the spot or we're, you know, a question is posed in a way where you're just like, you know, if you answer it one way, you look bad. If you answer it another way, you know, it's in people's perception of it. So it might be something to look into. Yeah. But there, yeah. I guess there's also room there for an asynchronous version of that through audio, yeah. right? I post yes. it up. And then they have a chance to respond on their yes. own. Like that could yeah, be yeah. really neat. There's a tool that I've been looking at called Yappa okay. that allows you to do that to engage with podcasters where you can do video or audio responses to them okay. and then they can make threads. Oh yeah. And I thought that was kind of interesting. We're actually going to try it out on Sounds Profitable, I think, because I okay. want to give people the chance to say, no, Brian, what you said is wrong or I disagree <laughs> with it completely. Yeah. And here's another view yeah. and then have the chance to take that, put that into the podcast or. I don't know, a lot of really cool things that I can do with it. But I like the mindset of what you're saying is that the non-real-time conversation allows for a little bit more room for things to be well thought out and organic in the same yeah. way that 
that's why I write my newsletter. Because if I were to do what Evo Terra does with podcast pontifications, where I just talk for 10 minutes, I would yeah. delete it every day. <laughs> yeah, totally. Every day. Absolutely. There's another service called Rumble, rumble.studio. I think it might be something similar to Yappa. So I'll, I'll check, check that one out. But I was t speaking to the founder and it's a way to almost do like a asynchronous interview with a guest. And yeah, yeah, I did so see that. Of, yeah, so that's very that. cool. I think that the more tools like that, the better. I think that a natural conversation like we're having right now is very fun, but I think you're right. There's sometimes where you just want a response or maybe you build off of it and you don't necessarily need that live engagement. There's sometimes your show might not be a true interview show and getting you know someone to answer a question could be more valuable than bringing a guest on and changing your format. So as many tools as we can find, yeah. like, you know, we're using Squadcast right now and I love that. Like it just allows for us to potentially do video and to do audio. And I think there's a lot of possibility and I think I'm excited to see this year, all the crazy tools that come out to make it easier to podcast. They're not going to stop. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And so I have another project I'm working on called the Potosphere, which is essentially like a marketplace. And I've been for the past year and a half, just tracking all the companies. I'm up to 500 so far <laughs> in the podcasting space. And so your landscape chart about how the different companies get categorized has been helpful for, to help me sort of piece some of that together. So I'd love to share it with you at some point. Yeah, yeah, we should collaborate on that. There's a few other people that I've been talking to about it. Dane over at Simplecast has a really great map so far that he has internally of all the companies, right? Mine with the Podscape with Magellan AI has been really focused on the advertising landscape yeah. because, you know, my newsletter is about podcast ad tech. They specifically work in the ad tech space. But I think that that would be great. I think that having a resource where you, I can type in like hosting providers with dynamic ad insertion and see a list of all of them where they can claim it and expand yeah. on it. They can list their capabilities and features. They can list their pricing if they want to, their contact info. I think we need that because yeah. the space is growing quickly. And I think you could probably also get away with an entirely podcast or audio focused product hunt in today's yeah. age. And you'd have you know a newsletter's worth of content every day still. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm working on. So <laughs> we should definitely chat. I'd love to. Uh, do you remember the first podcast you listened to? The Thrilling Adventure Hour which is with, I guess it's like an old time radio reenactment style. And it's, I'm blanking out on, Paul F. Tompkin is one of the, the people mm. on there, Mark Girardi. And it's, they do all these little segments of like audio drama shows and they, they do it live and then they record it. And I've been such a big fan of it. You know, it, it's less of a podcast and more of like a podcast format of a live experience. Yeah. But it's so fun. I, I guess they started releasing in 2011. And I always look back and I was like, oh, I guess I really only got into podcasting around serial. And that that was like when I really like sat down and made it a priority to listen to everything in a podcast. Yeah. But I think there were things like that I listened to beforehand that I just kind of dismissed as podcasting because I was my focus wasn't to like dig into podcasting. There was something specific I wanted out of it. Like yeah. I would listen to Tim Ferriss because I was a chubby kid obsessed with the four hour body and I was, you know, I was very excited about the idea of drinking wine every night and losing weight. <laughs> yeah, everyone that went through those books like went on some sort of like crazy like from the 4-hour work week. I mean, I, I think I started two or three companies just from the basis of that book. Yeah. From the 4-hour chef, I mean, I, I bought my cast iron skillet. I was making like <laughs> I was like doing all the stuff in there, so he gets you off on these tangents every time you read one of his books. It's funny. I think that there's a lot of value in his content and I think he's done a lot for the space and I think it's easy for people to dismiss him sometimes, but I, you know, I'm thankful for what I've learned from him. What was the other? Oh, no such thing as a fish was another one that I was obsessed mm. with that I just didn't like, I didn't think about it as like, oh, let's listen to a podcast. It was just like, oh, this is available. It's, it was such a weird shift after serial for me that like, let's listen to podcasts. Let's find podcasts. Let's, let's recognize this industry as something I can work in where before it was like, to me kind of just felt like downloading an MP3. Yeah. Do you remember how it felt or what, how you even knew to look for it, you know, and what that experience was like? Because at the time I was working on a mobile app for electronic music. That's how my whole podcasting journey got started because I, I wanted to interview DJs and I was like, oh, prior to 2012, I thought a podcast was a DJ mix. Like if people would tell me, let's listen to a podcast, I'm like, you mean a, a one hour long DJ mix? And it wasn't only until about 2012 that I was working on a mobile app. I, was, I just stumbled onto like Pat Flynn and people talking about like mobile apps. I was like, oh, this is interesting. And that was that sort of like opened up that whole new world for me. So I'm wondering if you can even think back to, you know, 
if you realize like what it was that you were discovering at the time? Yeah, I don't remember how I came across it. It must have been a friend recommending it to me. It was definitely another format that I received the information in, and then there was the pursuing the fact that there was more available, right? That I went to their website or I watched a video or something, I read a book, and then the end result was, oh, there's more. And yeah, I mean, I don't think that I found it really organic. Like, I don't think that like I was like, oh, what's this new app? And I clicked on it. I definitely think I skipped over the app for a few years on the iPhone, which is so funny because the idea of like an app natively on my device that I wouldn't explore is so foreign to me. My background yeah. is in mobile, uh, yeah, yeah. mobile ad tech. I used to do product like video reviews of mobile apps and it was, it's just so funny to me that I wouldn't have explored that. But yeah, it was, it all came from somebody recommending it to me and then me finding out that there was more content than the format I received and digging into it. And it was neat. I mean, I still get the same feeling from then that I, or now than I had then. A great example is I'll be working out in my garage and I'll go to put on an audiobook and it just feels lonely. Like it's so <laughs> cliche and everybody likes trashing on it, but I put on the audiobook and I'm just like, oh God, I realize that I'm alone in my garage and it's poorly lit and it's a little too chilly to open the gate. And also I don't want to look goofy with the, you know, the garage door open and everybody staring at me in the neighborhood. But if I put on a podcast where there's multiple people and I like them and I can relate to them and I want to hear their thoughts and opinions, it kind of feels like I'm listening into a conversation of friends. Mm. And in a year where I've been to no conferences, casually listening to your friends talk has been really comforting. I think that there's a, there's like a real nice feel to it. And yeah. I think I'm very thankful that I haven't felt that go away. Even a podcast, like even pod news, which is like quick news in like three to five minutes still feels more welcoming and inviting than listening to, you know, the latest Brandon Sanderson book, which every word is specifically picked to drive an intent. Yeah, yeah. You listen to an hour long podcast. Heck, if somebody listens, when people are listening to this podcast, they can lose track of the conversation for 30 seconds and then pick it back up mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. we are talking in circles to a little degree, right? We are yeah. not using our every word to the most effect. So it's, it's not measured. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Nobody's coming out and, and hitting us on the knuckles for the word count being too long. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because there is that scripted, prepared, polished aspect of audiobooks. And while it is still an audio format, I think to your point, and I agree, like early on, I would listen to, I would make it a point to listen to podcast episodes when I see someone that I know that was going to be on the episode, because it just, you know, you, you know, the voice and, and prior to that, I'd, I'd probably hung out with them at the bar at, at podcast movement or something like that. So I was just like, yeah, let's, let's hear what the what folks are up to. Having been in, in tech and mobile tech for so long, I'm wondering if you remember what's the first piece of physical tech that you ever purchased? Oh, I was like 14 years old and I bought like the, the Nokia brick phone okay. <laughs> and my parents could not understand why I wanted a cell phone. And all my friends were convinced I was a drug dealer, but I was like a, like a real awkward, <laughs> chubby Italian kid with a widow's peak down to my nose and my hair slicked back like Eddie Munster. That's funny. I don't, I don't think I really even drank until college. So definitely wasn't using it for that. I just was obsessed with the technology, the idea that I could have that access and I didn't have anybody to call or text. Like I was 14, like none of my friends had a phone but I wanted it and you know, I got a job at McDonald's to pay for it. That's, That's like the funny. first thing that I like really purchased yeah. myself. I think that I like highly remember like all those junky tiger electronic games that cost like 20 or $30 <laughs> that I would convince my parents to buy and not realizing that like, if I just was patient and waited a few more months that like two of those was the same price as a Nintendo game, it would be yeah. way more fun. But I had a cell phone addiction. I bought every weird phone you can imagine. I had every variation of the nokia this doesn't look like a phone out there the one with the circular dial pad the n-gauge <laughs> in fact a friend sent me he bought me an n-gauge off of oh the n-gauge was with the uh was that the keyboard yeah, yeah well the n-gauge was the one was trying to be a video game system and then and then nokia made another version of that that was like the music version that yeah. was still looked like a taco right like it was shaped like a taco with the screen in the center but it had a keyboard on both sides 
but I, I gotta say, I miss T9 typing. Like the ability to like mm. send a text message with your hand in your pocket because you don't have to look at the screen and you know how many taps each letter is. So funny. <laughs> Did you get every, I had the uh, Nokia one that was the, the, with the sliding door, but it was Chrome. So oh, it was the Matrix like style a, one? A thousand, it was like pure James Bond. Like it was just like, you just slid it. And I remember like being in New York and then I obviously left it in a cab one night. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, I was like, I felt, literally felt like James Bond with that phone. It, it was so cool. I don't think Zero I functionality other than just making a phone call. I remember getting, I, like I got a sidekick for a hot minute and those were so ahead of their time. Like. They did you have, black, were did you have so a BlackBerry cool. as well? I never really got into BlackBerry. I like I, I don't think I was like old enough to really dive in and find like the corporate value of it. And and I don't think that like connecting to my college email would have really yeah. helped me out much. But yeah. There's some of the, the tactile, you know, feel that you miss, you know, just being able to see the letters and, and typing on them. I think that's why people to this day, I think a couple of years ago, I remember a friend of mine still was holding on to his just like I think Barack Obama kept his too, like when yeah. he came into office. Well, the sidekick was the one that was like horizontal, but you could yeah. you flip the screen, and it just mm -hmm. made this like satisfying like snap sound, and yeah. then it looked like a Game Boy. And yeah, I mean, you're right. The tactile feel is really different. Like I love where we are with iOS and Android. I, I'm excited to see what's next on it. Like I really yeah. think that uh, augmented reality is going to have a really mm. big pull in a lot mm -hmm. of things, yeah. but. Yeah, I don't know. I do miss the keys, but I can't imagine my kid is ever going to understand that, you know? Yeah, this is one of those things you just chalk it up to just another time, <laughs> another yeah. generation. So it, it would just make sense that given, you know, your history and where you worked that you were going to end up in mobile. Yeah, I tried really hard. I mean, when the app store opened up, I started a website with a with a guy I met online. I was doing like freelance content writing for like five to 25 cents a word oh, right? wow. depending on what it was like i definitely wrote for a lot of spam sites but i was in college and i was trying to figure out what i wanted to do and this guy approached me and said like let's you know run this iphone app review site it was called appv.com and i would play with six apps a day and with maybe 15 minutes i would write a review i pointed my camera directly down at the phone and i would like walk through it and then I would yeah, read the review. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I would read the review and, and like as a voiceover and we posted on YouTube and I had a really thick Boston accent at that point. And so people would be like, nice accent, mass hole. And so I worked really hard to get rid of it. And then I, I did, I miss it now at 35 being in Texas. I wish I had a thick Boston accent. It would yeah, be yeah. way cooler. <laughs> but then I finally did it. And I got rid of it. And the next video comments was just like, you got fat fingers. <laughs> just My like, God. I can't win. But we started uh, AndroidApps.com as well. And then I got mm. picked up by a company called Medialets that was eventually acquired by Group M. And I just, I got into the podcast ad tech side, right? The ability to work with these developers who are trying to monetize and trying to figure out a way to, to do it right and do it cool. I got to learn firsthand and collaborate with the building of how NPR and New York Times did their first mm. mobile app setup, the mobile ad setup, and learned a lot. It definitely caused a lot of damages. <laughs> Serving a full screen ad with no close button to the New York Times app <laughs> for their first one. I oh, think wow. it took like a, you couldn't hard close an app then, so you had to delete it and reinstall it. Oh and my it God. took about two weeks to fix it. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it might have caused a couple, you know, 100,000 to a million in damages, I guess. But I learned a lot, and it was really cool to take this technology that I was obsessed with and make it a career and look at ways to help people monetize that didn't destroy their creativity, right? I would always push for other ways to go about it. Don't just throw a banner there. Don't mm -hmm. set a full page interstitial to go every third page view. Really yeah. be aware of your customer and make sure that you are not alienating them, but mm -hmm. also taking advantage of monetization. And it just, it was a natural fit into podcasting. It's, it's exciting. When, did you see or understand or was it gradual this move from mobile ad space you know serving up ads in mobile apps and games and then the jump to podcasting and then seeing the potential i imagine you were listening to podcasts at the time so you were trying to understand what the ecosystem was and and the needs of someone like an npr is obviously different than someone like you know me with this show for example or people who are just getting started but there is a desire to obviously you know everyone <laughs> 
the question is like, how do I monetize my show? I love when people ask me that without giving me any context about yeah. what their show is about. I'm like, <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, if it was just gradual, how you started seeing what people were doing early on in the space and maybe creating tech that was new at the time as well. You know, it's funny because we were at Barometric and I, I forget whether it was Matt Trangler, who's now at Podsites or Dustin O'Dell, who's at an investment firm. One of them was the salesperson in WNYC called them up and was just like, we advertise with Progressive. We're tracking their campaigns in mobile with you guys. Can you track podcasts? And one of them said, yes. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I, I think we can, but can we yeah. test it first? And like, no, absolutely. We can do that. And I was like, oh no, we have to figure this out. And then we just realized that you could, and there weren't a lot of people six years ago doing that. So we dove in headfirst and we switched the entire company's focus to that. And that brought me deeper into it, right? It brought me after, after we exited to Claritas, like I worked with Megaphone for about nine months leading their data and monetization side, basically overseeing the ad server and all of that and being a sales engineer to the sales team. And it was just really neat to be able to take that knowledge that I learned about how the tech works and then work directly with publishers who are using their platform to make the most out of it. Yeah, I think there was just, you know, it wasn't like I was, I didn't look at the space and go, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm going to advance into there. It was the company I was at took a turn and I was like, oh, this makes sense. But it's funny you say that about people asking you how to monetize. I hear that all the time. And it's so hard because people are like, oh, I've recorded 12 episodes and we took like a two month <laughs> break. And before I really get back into it and take it seriously, I want to know if I can monetize. And the answer is no, you can't. Yeah. Sorry. Like, I think we need to be real with yeah. people right now. I think that it's so like people are like, but you know, it feels like I could go make it big in podcasting. How do I do that? And I look at these people and I say, like, if I told you I wanted to go be a Twitch streamer or a YouTube celebrity, or I want to be a number one band on Spotify, like, and I want to earn money from it, what would your reaction be? And they're like, oh, that's like, you can't just decide you want to do that. And I was like, yeah, yeah man, just because you can spend 250 bucks on a mic, sound pretty good out of the box and, you know, record everything doesn't mean that you're going to be a podcast that can make money. It doesn't mean that people want to hear you and your friends talk about a, your favorite horror movie over and over again. It's okay that not everybody can make money in this space. If you do want to make money in this space, there's ways about it. But the step one is spend money, right? Spend money on advertising, work with professionals who can properly get you set up, work on promotion and things like that. But if your goal is, I just want to put content out there and get downloads and then be able to get revenue, like my podcast is two weeks old at the time that we're recording this, right? I mean, less than that. The first one released last Sunday, so we're talking. If about you don't 10 count the days. trailer, yeah, yeah, the trailer <laughs> from two months ago, which probably screwed me over uh, about popularity-wise, like because I'm not new and notable now. I think that right now, with my newsletter that's 2,500 people, with all the push that I've had from people like yourself out there and Pod News, I'm at under a thousand total downloads. Right. And that's, that's a crazy amount in comparison to the average number that a podcast gets. Right. Yeah. There are podcasts out there with single digits that are busting their butt that are doing way more work than I am. But that's how it is. Right. And the monetization level that seems to be the standard that people want to focus around is about 10,000 downloads a month. Right. It doesn't matter if it's your old episodes or your new episodes, it's the combined 10,000 downloads a month. Yeah. That's going to take me a while with other distribution channels, with trying out things that, you know, people in this space really need to see and learn and experience firsthand. If I hit 10,000 downloads a month by the end of the year, like I'm honestly going to be surprised. And so I'm putting money and time and effort into these things. I am showing people how to use this technology different. I don't think I could reasonably monetize it as my only source, but it's an extension of my newsletter, which I do monetize, right? I do sell sponsorships and advertisements there. That's how I stay afloat and I'm able to be a neutral third party. And so the podcast then becomes an extension of that. It helps sell my brand in multiple places. It helps be a way for people to stumble on and come back to my core. It helps as a great test to show off what I can do as a consultant. And that I think is really important that if your goal is that podcasting is where you're going to make money, if you don't have $50,000 to invest to figure it out, mm. I don't think that that's the right way. But if podcasting is going to extend your brand, if podcasting is going to be a funnel for you to generate other revenue, go for it. Heck, if podcasting is going to be fun, do it. 
But the biggest thing is, is that you could be a breakout hit overnight. You could totally surprise everybody. You start talking about something that's just perfect at the right time and it blows up. You can always go back and monetize. Don't ever worry about the dollars you missed. Don't ever worry about the setup that you have now. Pick the platform that works best for you. Pick the tools that work best for you. Do it how you want to do and know that you can always change it. I think that's so important what you're saying about being realistic with people and having honest conversations because I've been having more of those recently when people just managed to get some time with me and or just we're, we're chatting about the topic and the topic of monetization comes up. And I think anyone who's in the space who is realistic about understanding the landscape and what it takes to, to monetize, I think would be doing their, whoever they're helping, whoever they're coaching a service and just letting them know like what you just outlined there, how realistically hard it's going to be if you don't have something specific to talk about. And I keep telling people like, Yes, there's close to 2 million podcasts in the Apple Podcast Directory, but you know, the more niche you can be, you can still build an audience, you know, and even if it is a niche, you know, show specifically, you know, yours is only about ad, ad tech, specifically talking to people in the podcast industry, but you know, be specific about the content and if you're doing it right, you can attract sponsors who are interested in in that niche audience. And I think just letting people know what those numbers are that they need to hit because to your point you know i've got 50 downloads i've got 100 downloads per episode what why aren't the sponsors coming to knock on my door <laughs> i think the more of that that can happen the better yeah and, and that's a big thing that i like to point out that i've started to focus on lately advertisement is the concept of like a, a really granular level of sale right cost per thousand cpm cost per milli is is what it stands for is the idea that you know anywhere between four dollars and fifty dollars I've seen is what you sell a thousand downloads or a thousand impressions of that ad, right? Because you could have 10 ads in a download. So that's 10 potential there. I think that advertisement is the focus of that granular level. I'm going to sell it this very specific way. Sponsorship is really key for smaller brands. Oh yeah. I have a very specific market that I talked to. A friend of mine, Ben, has a, I think it's Military Veteran Dads is his podcast. And it's all about how dads who come home from the military get back in step with their life. And he was approached by a hearing aid company. And the mindset was that like, at first he was compelled to give them CPM based numbers. And I said, no, man, like you are talking to people who are struggling to come home. You're talking to people that have to overcome so many things. Some of them probably have hearing loss issues, right? And they're, that's another thing that they have to overcome. What a perfect target audience. So just pitch them it as a sponsorship on what you can provide, who you're talking to, the type of ta content they can create, their rights to repurpose it. That's really what you can do when you have a small niche audience. If you could talk to a hundred people that are very focused on that and even 10 of them convert, right? Because it's so specific. That's really powerful. Yeah. I think that that's the big thing. Advertising is tracking and attribution and cost per million or cost per thousand rather CPM. Sponsorship is this is who I am. This is my reach. This is the value I can provide. I think until you hit 10,000 downloads, you should only focus on sponsorship. Agreed. But I also think that if you can keep always focusing on sponsorship, it's way healthier. Yeah, it's, it's exactly what we tell clients. Like when we launch, I, I haven't do it. And since we focus on building shows for, for business owners, I say, look, just be your first sponsor. Like do an ad read from day one with your first episode. Oh, this episode yeah. brought to you by my company. Get into the habit of doing the ad read. So not only are you comfortable doing it because it takes some time to get into that pattern and sound natural, your listeners from day one will know that you have an ad spot. Yep. And, like, and just position yourself in a way where you can offer that up and just and then just be creative to your point. I started a new show in vertical farming because I, I read a book. I saw your post yeah. about it, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I landed a sponsorship, Ryan, from day, before I re released the first episode. So I, I and to, as of now, this recording, I've generated over $14,000 in sponsorship from that podcast. And I'm definitely not getting 10,000 downloads per episode. But because it's so niche, because I picked a, a vertical or an industry that's getting, you know, no, I like billion, that was a good pun. 14 billion, <laughs> 14 billion dollars in funding, you know, by 2026, I did my homework ahead of time. Yeah. I said, this is something that's interesting, that's growing. And, and I targeted CEOs and founders from, from day one, because I wanted to 
when people saw the names on the show, they'd be like, oh, I know who that is, I know who that is. And just, I was strategic and, you know, and, and it worked out. And I use that as an example now with clients, like, think about who would make a good sponsor for this show. So it's that platform approach that I talk about. You're not selling people downloads, you're telling them, this is my following on LinkedIn, this is my following on Twitter, on Instagram, and yep. we start adding those numbers. You get into the tens of thousands for most people, at least who've been in business for a while. That's so much more attractive to tell them, I've got a platform reach of like 20,000. You don't even have to mention downloads at that point because they, they know that you're gonna be bending over backwards and sharing their sponsorship like you're doing like I, I see that every time you have a new sponsor on the on a newsletter you post it on linkedin and they appreciate that and I, and I do the same thing with vertical farming as well yeah and i think everybody listening should really take note that what harry's saying here is that you could start a vertical farming podcast tomorrow and, and really just knock off 50 percent of his sponsors and just get that for yourself so there's seven thousand dollars on the table for anybody who wants to copy him exactly no but you're you're right the niche is really the an interesting thing i don't want to hear anybody else's opinions about something that's broad that i can get from places that are respected and well-developed like i do want to hear about topics very specific things they're you know, the weird stuff we type into Google, the second I can type that and write podcasts at the end and I find an episode on it, oh yeah. man, I devour it. And even yeah. if that show doesn't appeal to me, I'm talking about it. It's like a Yelp review for something that you've loved, right? When you stumble onto that core, cool piece of content somewhere, you become the biggest fan because they scratch your itch in a way that's so powerful. I mean, I use Pocket all the time and I take everything on pocket and I just like add to pocket, add to pocket. And then I try at the end of the day to listen to them because they do a, like a, a text to speech version, yeah. which the voice isn't good, but it gets the job done. If I can find any of those things in podcast format, I'll do that any day. I got a toddler. I got so much going on in my life. I got chores I need to do. I have to work out. I have to make dinner. To, you know, there's so many things. If I can listen to a podcast where someone more intelligent then a, a robot reading an article can break something down to me. I'm their biggest fan. I'm telling everybody about it. So that's, you. generalist shows are oversaturated. Mm -hmm. Like if you're making a podcast right now and your goal is for that to be the center of it, be obscure, be wide out there. Yeah, like that. find your own niche and just really own explore it. it. Yeah. Yeah, so, cause I, I, and we talk about this with clients too, like, name the show like what people are looking for like the, i think i don't know if it's unless you're a, a paris hilton you can name it my my cute podcast and, and you'll you'll get millions of downloads but like when i thought about the name of the show for vertical farming i called it vertical farming podcast it's the unsexiest name in the world but if you type those three words yeah. into google right now my podcast is the first listing on google because, that's fantastic and i grabbed the domain vertical farming podcast domain like use the power of google and the seo like to just let it do the heavy lifting for you from a podcast perspective and to your point like find these obscure terms and, and where people are type to your point typing in those words in google and you know, it's almost like the podcast creates itself yeah no you're spot on I'm curious how you got connected with James because I've, I've been podcasting since 2014 and obviously follow a ton of people in the space. And, you know, you came at it through Barometrics and the work you were doing in the mobile space. So when did you start getting connected to like, you know, or hearing about folks like James and, and some of the other folks? I know you've been on Heather's show as well. <laughs> yeah. So I met James at Podcast Movement LA in 2020, like right oh, before okay. the world ended. Right it's before, so funny. Wow. And we finally talked and I was at Megaphone at the time and we just talked about all these ideas and he's so smart and he loves all this technical stuff, but it, he doesn't have a lot of room to talk about it in pod news, right? He has so such a specific thing that he does, which is the headlines with feedback and information. And I think it's the center point of the space. I think if you are in podcasting, you need to follow pod news because it appeals to everything. I think that like content creation, like hot pod makes a ton of sense on that end. On ad tech, you know, humbly, I'm going to say it sounds profitable, does a pretty good yeah. job over there. But, you know, James just is that center point there. And we hit it off. We had a great conversation. We were talking about different ways that we could do like an open committee. I think we both had a lot of hopes for what the podcast academy would be and then it kind of fell off the the world started to end i was working heads down at megaphone it turned out not to be a great fit and i started writing medium posts about podcast ad tech and he started sharing them and they got so much attention and i was really happy about it and so i just reached out and i said could we do this as a newsletter and he said that sounds awesome and so he handles the whole infrastructure we have a really really great deal we're building out the pod news network which is so attractive like what else could that expand to be and I've learned 
a ton from him. He's influenced a lot of the stuff that I've done for writing. He's provided great editing services. He's he's been the reason why we're at twenty five hundred subscribers is because you know the content's great, but he's helping it get the distribution and the oh, attention. Yeah. And I'm I'm so thankful for that. But it's also fun to see him start to explore these different things, or us to collaborate on a topic and it give him material and hopefully the comfort to start writing about those ideas more because he's super intelligent. The Podland News podcast is like a must listen to yeah. because it's the top stories from the previous week or even that week in Pod News, but expanded on by Sam Sethi asking him questions and him digging into detail. And so, you know, it was that, and I met up with Evo Terra at the same time and we hit it off too. He came at me with tough questions. I came at him with tougher questions. And then we, we had a, an amazing mutual respect and he has been number one guy in my corner, huge like supporter and mentor, great friend. And he's helped me get on all these podcasts and get in front of all these people to talk more. So I would not be where I am without, you know, James uh, supporting me and providing my stage and Evo being an editor. I didn't realize how powerful it was to take someone's ideas and, and write them so they actually make sense. Uh, because I put a lot of words on paper and yeah, he yeah. makes them a little bit more accessible. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And uh, the only gripe is that I now have more podcasts about podcasts on my <laughs> app player to the point where like, I because I literally have so few, t so little time. I think I have one other podcast about startups that I listen to called My First Million that I'm binging. But everything else I think is either like all like Evo's, yours now, James's Pod News and Podland. And it's just like, but I, I want to, it's the best way for me to stay on top of what's happening in the industry yeah. and Heather's as well. So it's just been fascinating and everyone's like friends and we're all like this little community of, of people who have the best interest of podcasting at heart, which is hundred percent. Yeah. A couple of questions as, as we wrap up, I, I knew this, there's like 20 other topics I want to cover, but I think we might have to just, um, just we can do this. a round two. I'm yeah. always happy to come back a round two. Yeah. It'd be great. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Oh, wow. Specifically podcasting? I know. Anything. Uh, that San Antonio can be cooler than Austin. <laughs> I'm recording this right now yeah. from a co-working space in San Antonio deep in their basement because we're evaluating moving from Austin to San Antonio because it's a little bit more family friendly and, and uh, it would help us, you know, wipe out a bunch of debt and just get a little bit more comfortable. And I was, I was very in love with Austin and I still think it's great, but I can be an hour and a half away from it. I can be in another city. So that's something that, that I didn't think owning a house for three years, we'd already be ready to sell. So that's, that's, a good, <laughs> that's, that's my, the one I'd change. What's the most misunderstood thing about you? You know, I think that it's easy for me to forget sometimes what is and isn't commonplace knowledge, especially, you know, it's, I think it's funny saying that because my entire goal is to break something down from the base and make it accessible to more people. But the problem is, is that I'm further and further from that base and I'm assuming knowledge. So I think, you know, I don't mean anything negative by it. When I come in, start talking at the 200 or 300 level, it's, I size the person up. I assume a level of knowledge. It's not meant as like an insult or to make them uncomfortable. It's that they look and they act like they know that information. Mm. So I think I skip some steps sometimes. And, and I also think that it's hard for people to just be like, Hey, could we start from step one? You're at step five. And I, I think I could do better at making that easier, but it's not meant as like an insult. It's not meant in any way. In fact, I think it's usually meant as a compliment because I think they're at the same speed that I'm talking at. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Brian, I was really looking forward to this conversation. Did not disappoint. Thank you so much. I loved hearing your journey and, uh, just you know, how exciting it's been for you to take that passion that you had for mobile phones early on and seeing where that led you. And, and now being a, an influential voice in podcasting, I'm excited to see where the industry is headed as I'm sure you are as well. And I'm, I'm grateful for the, the voice you're providing in the podcasting space. And I think a lot more voices like that are needed because there's going to be a lot of people entering the space. You know, we think it's saturated now, but I think there's just you know, as silly as it is to talk about Paris Hilton's podcast, that's another inflection point where people are, are yeah. going to say, Hey, what's a podcast? Like, just like Joe Rogan did. So yep, this is going to look like a blip in the Bitcoin yeah. scale right now. Like it's, <laughs> it's nothing in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. We're going to get way bigger. Yeah.
So thanks again. And, and we'll definitely have some follow-ups yeah, in, in the future. So I appreciate it. Where's the best place for folks to learn more about Sounds Profitable and to connect with you? Yeah, soundsprofitable.com and then brian at soundsprofitable.com. I spell it with a Y personally, but I uh, have it redirected from the I. So don't worry <laughs> about it. Just get Brian across there and he'll come to me. Okay. Thanks again for your time. Thank you. Thanks again to Brian for coming on the show. Much appreciated. Learned a lot about the new things happening with Podcast Ad Tech. I may be testing out some of those on this show as well. So stay tuned for that. Podcastjunkies.com forward slash 254 for the full show notes. In show notes, your music composed by Cedar and Soil. Check out Focusrite. And they're also minor gear, specifically the Scarlett 2i2 Pro. Learn more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash chat15. Tune in next week from a conversation with Damona Hoffman. If you've made it this far, you're no doubt looking for this week's retention hashtag. Let's go with Sounds Brian. Sounds Brian spelled B-R-Y-A-N. Tag us at podcast underscore junkies and Brian at high five RPG. That's H-I-G-H-F-I-V-E-R-P-G. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Talk to you next episode.